Uh, so Mercy Hill, uh, happy fifth anniversary. Happy birthday, church. We're so excited to get to our fifth anniversary. If it's your first time, uh, welcome. It's always good to meet somebody for the first time at a birthday party. So we're glad that you are here. Listen, we um, have a crowd today, which is exciting. Uh, that also means uh, we're looking for a few extra seats. Uh, and then I also just wanted to say, if the crowd is maybe making you a little nervous, um, the TV in the lobby will be on with sound. And so if you want to just like slip out and you would rather feel a little more comfortable watching out in the lobby, I'm not trying to kick you out. I'm trying to make sure you feel comfortable, all right? And so you're more than welcome to do that as well. So our fifth anniversary is a little crazy. Uh, there were times where we didn't think we would make it to five years. Uh, one of the great things, though, is this means we have definitely made it out of the toddler stage. Uh, so no more fits or tantrums. Uh, some of you guys need to get that memo, all right? So we're no longer in the toddler stage. We moved through preschool. I guess at five, we're going to kindergarten, uh, which also means no nap time, all right? So, um, so Harry, nap time's over, all right? We don't do nap time in kindergarten anymore, uh, so I expect your full attention. Listen, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we're going to pick up. Uh, with one of my favorite stories in all of the scripture in Mark chapter 2. Um, so five years ago, uh, we launched Mercy Hill. Really, the journey began a couple years before that. Uh, in 2012, 2013, my wife Krista and I started praying about what it would look like for us to be a part of starting a church. Uh, at that time, I was on staff at another church. I talked to my pastor about that. Uh, and then I talked to just a couple of friends, uh, some of whom are here today. Uh, so Mitchell, obviously, is one of those friends. Then my friend, uh, Matt Taylor, who's right down here. And, um, and so those guys said, hey, we're with you. And so in 2015, uh, we moved up here uh, together, uh, eight adults together to try to start a church. At that time, we had eight adults and eight kids. We had like a rocking kids ministry then, uh, which was just like put the kids in my basement and hope they don't go insane. Uh, one of the first things, though, that that group of people did uh, is when we got to Kennesaw, we hiked up Kennesaw Mountain, which I'm sure every church planner of all time moving to this area has done. And we just got together on Kennesaw Mountain, looking over most of Cobb County, uh, and just prayed. I uh, just prayed and prayed together. And one of my favorite things about us now being on this property uh, is if you're in this back parking lot over here in the right spot, you can see the top of Kennesaw Mountain. And so on a regular basis, three or four times a week, I just sneak over to that parking lot, take a peek, and just remind it of God's faithfulness that our church started just praying together uh, on that mountain. So we got started uh, 2016. We launched the church, uh, and we were at meeting at Palmer Middle School then, which was pretty incredible. And then obviously right before COVID, started having opportunities and talking about uh, moving to this location and moving here. It's just been a blessing to us, and we met so many new people and new faces and new friends here. Here's the deal. I want, I want to be real clear with you. When we decided to start a church, there's just one verse, one section of the Bible that really captured our hearts. It's Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Romans 15, 8, Paul says, For I tell you uh, that Christ became a servant, so Jesus came as a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Here's what he just said. That Jesus came in the form of a servant to the people, this is circumcised Jewish people, the people who were familiar with God's stuff. And he came to them so that they would know that God keeps his promises that God was not going to leave them, God had not abandoned them, but God had a plan to redeem them. And then he says this in verse 9, 
and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That then people who didn't know about God, people who didn't know the story of God, hadn't been connected to the people of God whatsoever, would see Jesus as a servant, and their response would be to worship God and give him glory. And so for the past five years, that's just been our hope and our desire. Our dream for this church was that we would be a place where people who are familiar with God and church would come and be just enthralled again and anew with who God is, that it would, God would recapture their hearts and attention through the person of Jesus. Uh, and then our hope and prayer uh, was that we would be a church where people who are far from God, who didn't know the story of God, didn't know about Jesus, didn't understand what Jesus had to do with their lives, would hear the story of Jesus and respond in faith. And so we're like, well, how do we do that? How do we accomplish that? And so the eight of us just looked around and said, well, here's what we have. We don't have a building. Uh, we don't have a ton of financial support. Uh, we don't have a slick marketing plan. What we have is just friendship. And so we just invited people to be our friends and invited people into friendship with us. That was it. That was the overarching strategy of Mercy Hill. Let's just be friends with people. And in the course of being friends with them, let's make sure that they know that Jesus is a friend as well. Uh, so five years later, uh, sometimes that has gone really well. Some people I've learned don't want to be my friend, which is fine. I learned that the first, first day of sixth grade as well, all right? And so it's not a new lesson for me, um, but it's been really a beautiful time. And each one of you in this room has a small part of that. And so I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of what God's done in our church over the past five years. It's been a blessing, all right? You guys ready? Mark chapter 2. All right, that's all the sappy stuff. Let's dive in. Mark chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, could you speak directly to our hearts? As we look to your truth, Father, could it make a difference in our lives? Amen. Amen. So this is a story about friendship as well, so I'm really glad that we get to dive into it together. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, this is Jesus. We talked about last week how Capernaum is kind of a home base for Jesus' ministry and mission, so he's come back home to Capernaum. Now, we don't know if Jesus owns his own home there or if perhaps he's staying with a friend there, but he has a residence that he comes back to in Capernaum. Verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near, uh, not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed, glorified and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. I think to help us understand this, we could just break this up into three easy parts. The first part is we meet some amazing friends. We meet these four guys who are friends with a paralytic. The scene is they're trying to get their friend to Jesus. But when they arrive at the house where Jesus is, the crowd is so massive, they can't even get into the door. If you could imagine the scene, it would be like for college students if Justin Bieber or maybe Tom Holland moved into Kennesaw Place or the Blake, right? Like everybody wants to be at that party. Or perhaps for some of our older older crowd, it would be like this. What if Robert Redford moved across the street to the 55 and over community right here, right? It's that sort of thing happening. People are crowding in to see Jesus, So these four guys with their friend who's a paralytic, they can't even get in the door. Now, here's how we know they're really good friends. Because they could have just given up. When they can't get in the door, they could have just gone home. Now, the reason I love these guys is because I have some friends like this. Some of you who grew up in metro Atlanta, maybe you don't have this experience. But here are the kind of friends that I have where I grew up. I got some good old rednecks for friends. I'm pretty sure these guys are rednecks. All right? Because here's what suburban friends would have done. Well, I mean, there's no way to get in. The door's jammed. Maybe we could come back later when the crowd is less. Or perhaps kind of one of them would have pulled a Karen, right? And then just said, "Um, I'm going to need to speak to the manager right now because we have a, a pressing issue and we can't get in. This is very poor service, right? But instead, these guys sound like some of my friends growing up. Like, well, we can't get in. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to find a way to get in, man. What are you talking about? What are we going to do? Right? Well, what do we need? What do we need? I don't know. We've got some bailing wire and some duct tape and a flathead screwdriver. Right? We're going to climb up on the roof. And one guy says, well, I got all that stuff in my truck. Let's go. Right? And so these guys climb up on the roof. Now, Luke tells us that the roof is made of these clay tiles. And so what they do is they just dig a hole in the roof on top of the house where Jesus is. And then could you imagine being in the crowd? It's crazy enough that you are hearing Jesus teach and preach. But as you're listening to Jesus, some guy just is lowered from the ceiling right in front of you. And so the first thing we see in the story is these amazing friends who are willing to go to great lengths to make sure that their friend in need gets to meet Jesus. And these are the kind of friends all of us want, right? The kind of friends who are willing to do something reckless or maybe break a few rules in order to make sure that you get what you need. Some amazing friends. And then we see what I'm going to say is an audacious faith. So you remember the scene, right? Jesus is preaching. There's a commotion overhead. All of a sudden, the guy on a bed, strapped up with some duct tape and some bailing wire, is lowered right in front of him, right? 
So what Jesus says is he, what the Bible says is Jesus sees the friends, sees the man, and what he's struck by, verse 5 says, is their faith. In other words, Jesus doesn't respond and go, these guys, man, look at the ingenuity, the creativity. Look at how clean the hole is they cut. Look at their skill and destruction of property. Instead, Jesus is amazed by their faith. That they believe that if they just get their friend in front of Jesus, Jesus is going to show up and do something incredible for their friend. What they have on the roof is not really an ingenious plan, although it works out. What they have is this compelling faith. This faith that's audacious enough to go, hey, we're going to destroy some property today just to make sure our friend gets in front of Jesus. Now, faith is a churchy word. We use it all the time. People talk about having faith in each other. Uh, People talk about faith as in some sort of sense of mysticism. Sometimes we talk about faith versus science. But what is the Bible talking about when it uses this word faith? When the Bible uses the word faith, it really means trust. And what we see in this story, the faith is the trust that these men have in Jesus. In particular, that Jesus is able to do something about their friend's situation. That's faith. This belief that Jesus, who has been healing people, can heal their friend. And then this faith that Jesus is good, or that Jesus is kind enough that he would be willing to heal their friend. And so they go to great lengths, and Jesus is... In awe, he sees their faith, and then he responds. So we've seen these amazing friends, we've seen this audacious faith, and last we see this astounding forgiveness in the story. Verse 5 again. Jesus says to the paralytic, sons, your sins are forgiven. Now this is astounding, surprising for a couple of reasons. The first one is, he didn't come to give forgiveness. He came in order to be healed. And so this is really a strange moment. Let's don't church this up. We should be struck by the weirdness of this. A big hole in the ceiling, a guy comes down, it's obvious what he needs. What he needs is on the surface. Everybody in the crowd can see what he needs. Jesus can see what he needs. His four friends know what he needs, and they all agree what he needs is to be healed. Everyone agrees with that except for Jesus. And Jesus instead looks at the guy and says, I'm going to give you what you actually need, what maybe you didn't realize you needed when you came in, what perhaps your friends didn't realize you needed when they lowered you through the roof, what perhaps everybody in the crowd is missing out on when they see the scene. What I'm going to give you is what you actually need, forgiveness. And then there's this other really weird thing. The scribes notice it. Now, we've met the scribes before. The scribes are these men who are trained to teach the Old Testament law or the Hebrew Bible. And we've seen that these scribes are not big fans of Jesus so far in the book of Mark. And so these scribes, not fans of Jesus, see something else strange, something else astounding here. What they notice is maybe what you and I should notice is this. That the only person who has the authority to forgive people of all of their sins is God. 
So then Jesus says to the man, you are forgiven. And the scribes come to the conclusion, this dude thinks he's God. Or at the very least, he thinks he has authority from God to speak on God's behalf. And he is proclaiming forgiveness over people like he's got some sort of special connection to the God of the universe. Or perhaps that he is God in person. Now, there's a word for this that we use often, delusional. That's really what the scribes are saying. That he is blaspheming or putting himself equal to God and that perhaps Jesus is delusional. He's saying he's God. That's another reason why this is astounding. And so Jesus answers this. Uh, This is one of the craziest things about Jesus, perhaps what is maybe unsettling about Jesus. Do you notice the scribes didn't say this out loud? They're thinking this, but not saying. So Jesus reads their thoughts, perceives what they're thinking, and he answers them. I love this, verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. I've taught this passage a ton. This is one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture. I've read a lot about it. I still don't know what Jesus means, right? Which is easier to say? I'm not sure. Which is easier to say? And on one hand, it seems easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can see into someone's heart. So you could say it but not have to demonstrate it. On the other hand, it would also be incredibly difficult to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, and then see something happen. So I'm not exactly sure what Jesus means by this question, except for this thing I'm pretty sure about. Both are impossible to do. I could say your sins are forgiven by God, under God's authority, and no one would ever know the difference if they were or they weren't, but I would not have that sort of authority. Does that make sense? It's impossible for me to forgive you for only what, for what God only can forgive you for. Not only that, but it's impossible for me to heal you with a word. Now, I love that we live in 2021 and there's amazing doctors who could do all sorts of amazing things, but they use medicine and technology and all sorts of things, not the spoken word. So don't miss this. Here's what Jesus is saying. Who do you think could speak a word and restore nerve endings, strengthen muscles that have been atrophied for years, re-put tendons together and heal a spinal cord? Who do you think could do that? The only person that could speak that into existence would be the one who spoke that into existence when he created all things. And then Jesus is saying, well, who do you think could forgive the sins that lie at the deepest part of your heart that no one even knows about with a word? Well, only the one who designed the heart in the first place. So Jesus is making it very clear to these guys. No, no. The reason I can forgive sins 
is because I'm the one who spoke all things into existence at the beginning, and I'm the one who speaks forgiveness over all people in all places. And then he uses a phrase. You see this, verse 9? It says, the Son of Man has authority. Now, we hear this phrase, the Son of Man, about Jesus all the time. Often, we think that this phrase is highlighting just Jesus' humanity. And then when we hear the phrase, Jesus, Son of God, that's highlighting his divinity. But that's actually not the case. This phrase is about a particular role talked about in the Old Testament book of Daniel in chapter 7. Now, for you to understand Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to have to back up just a little bit, all right? Do you remember Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve, created them in relationship to know him, and he uses this phrase that they would have dominion or rule over the earth. And so Adam and Eve are designed to be under God's rule, and yet rulers or many uh, representatives of God's rule over all of the earth. And so when sin enters the world, you remember what happens. It's actually just this act of rebellion, that Adam and Eve rebel against God. They push back against God's rule over their lives, and in doing so, they lose their rule or their place of authority that God has given them. All right, you guys with me? So Daniel chapter 7. Daniel talks about a person who is going to descend from heaven, live the life, be the human that God created humans to be, and then ascend triumphantly back to heaven and rule on this throne, reestablish the rule and reign of people. Or in other words, Daniel says the Son of Man is this one who's sent from God, who is going to do an amazing work to restore people to God and then return to his rightful place of rule. So when Jesus uses this phrase, the son of man, he's saying, I have the authority to forgive sins because I'm that guy. I'm the guy sent from God, God in person in order to restore humans to the way God intended them to be. In fact, this is the title Jesus uses about himself most often. It's not Messiah. It's not even son of God. Jesus says, most often, I'm the son of man, the one from Daniel 7, who's sent from God to restore all things and is going to return back to God in victory and reign. So what's so astounding about this scene and this forgiveness is not only Jesus' claim to divinity, but his claim to what this forgiveness produces, that what it produces is a restored relationship with God a restored humanity, a return to the way your heart was supposed to function, that Jesus is coming to forgive sins so that you and I could be who God designed us to be. This is crazy. So then here's what happens in the scene. If we get back up, get a big picture again for, the moment, for a moment. Jesus, by explaining his title as the Son of Man, by demonstrating his authority to forgive sins, and by ultimately then healing this man so he walks out of that room, is showing that he is the true king, the one sent from God. 
And we could say it this way, that Jesus is the true king who has come to meet our deepest need. See, in this story, Jesus looks past all the surface stuff, right to the heart of this man laying paralyzed on a bed, says, what you need most of all is not a healing. What you need most of all is a restoration to who God created you to be. See, this is what we most often miss. We, like the friends and the crowd and this man, most often think we know exactly what we need. A new car. Or healing in our family. Or a new spouse. Or a new job. Or fill in the blank. And we live most of our lives just like this guy, hoping and trying to get that need fulfilled. And sometimes Jesus fulfills those needs. But every time, if we come to him in faith, he meets our deepest need, which is not the things that we think we want, but to be restored by forgiveness into a relationship with the God of the universe, to be who God designed us to be. And in this story, Jesus is saying, I can do the healing and I will, but right now I want you to know I'm the true king, the son of man, set to set, sent to set all things right, including the very depths of your heart. Tim Keller says it this way. The Bible says that our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. Whether it's to success in our chosen field or to have a certain relationship or even to get up and walk. We're saying, if I have that, if I get my deepest wish, then everything will be okay. You're looking to that thing to save you from oblivion, from disillusionment, from mediocrity. You've made that wish into your savior. You would never use that term, of course, but that's what's happening. And if you never quite get it, you're angry, unhappy, empty. But if you do get it, you, you ultimately feel more empty and more unhappy. You've distorted your deepest wish by trying to make it into your Savior. And now that you finally have it, it's turned on you. What Keller is saying is that sometimes, sometimes what seems like the thing we need the most is actually the biggest barrier to happiness, joy, and fulfillment. Because that's the thing we've put in the place of God in our lives. And that leads to brokenness and destruction, a lack of contentment, an unfulfilling life. Why? Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because people were created to know God and live in relationship with him. Jesus, in this story, is making it clear that's what he came to fix. So sometimes, yes, we say this around church. Yes, people need their physical needs met before we have a spiritual conversation. That's true. Sometimes people need to know how much you care before they care how much you know. 
Sometimes people need to have physical needs met to clear the way so that they can actually hear and receive. Sometimes people are jaded against church and they need an act of loving kindness and mercy to soften their hearts. But also, sometimes we need our spiritual issues addressed before any other needs are met. Why? Because that's the thing that we're trusting to save us. Because often what you think you want the most is the largest barrier preventing you from knowing God. And what you often need is Jesus to speak a word of forgiveness and restoration to the depths of your heart, not whatever has captured your attention at this present moment. So some of us would come today saying, what I need is that new job. Really what you need is a sense of contentment that comes from knowing Christ. Some of us come in today, what I need most is to trade out my spouse. She's driving me insane. I just want to find someone new. And really what you need most is to experience the sacrificial love of Jesus in your life and then model that in your current relationship. Some of us come today saying, man, what I need is security. Perhaps what we need most is an audacious faith like we've seen in this text. Some of us come today saying, man, I need some more friends, some better friends. That's what I really need. And maybe what we actually need is a forgiveness and reconciliation that we find in Jesus. All right, let's bring this home. You know what I love most about this passage? The thing that captures my heart. So that I just will like go, this is so amazing. I love these guys. I love these four friends. This is a story that inside of my heart I go, I want friends like that. I want to experience those sort of relationships. And God has been very gracious to me and has given me some amazing friends that I just see clearly in this text. Several years ago, uh, me and some of my buddies uh, were turning 30, so it was a lot of years ago. Um, And so we took a trip together to the beach just to celebrate turning 30. Um, We had a lot of fun. Uh, We hung out. Uh, We told jokes, we remember the past, we did the whole thing. Uh, But there was one guy who didn't come. And the reason that he didn't come is because his wife wasn't a big fan of a boy's trip to the beach, which makes sense because sometimes those go wrong. I don't know if you knew that or not, but occasionally boy's trips unsupervised go wrong. And so I asked Chris and my wife, I was like, hey, so this guy can't go. I, I didn't even really think that you might have a problem with it. Are you okay with me going? She was like, of course, yeah, go. I was like, great, my wife wants me to have a good time with my bros, right? I was like, okay, why are you cool with it? Why is this okay for you? And this is what my wife said. She said, because I know if anything ever happened in our family where we needed something or I needed them, those guys would be here in an instant. No matter where they live, we're all scattered all over the southeast, that they would be here the same day. And so I'm letting you go on this trip because I think if you're ever out of line, right, and I need somebody to be a little forceful with you, I can call any of those guys. Those are good friends, right? And I I hope you have friends like that. But more than that, I think this begs the question, am I a friend like that? Am I a friend who has great faith and is willing to go to reckless lengths to make sure 
that my loved ones hear and know Jesus. And then the even better news for every single one of us here is that I want you to know you already have a friend like that. You see, the Bible says that Jesus is a friend. Jesus looks to his disciples before his crucifixion and says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And the friend that you need most is the friend that looks past all of the superficial stuff in your life directly into your heart. And the friend that you need the most is this friend, Jesus, the Son of Man, who came to restore you in a right relationship with God. Jesus who says sometimes hard things to us, but Jesus who loved us enough to die for us in our place. Jesus, the kind of friend who promises that he never leaves us or abandons us. Jesus, the friend who is not settled with who you are today, but longs for you to be restored into a right relationship with God. The good news today is whether you have a group of friends like I have the pleasure of having who love you sacrificially and who are amazing and who would drag you to Jesus' house and lower you through the roof. You might not have friends like that. And the good news today is even if you failed at being a friend like that, the good news is you have a friend in Jesus, the Son of Man, who laid down his life for you in your place so that you could be restored to a right relationship with God. And what does Jesus, this friend, ask of you in return? Just faith. Are you willing to trust that Jesus is both able to save you, forgive you, and to restore what's broken in you? And do you believe today that he's willing to do it? That's it. That's all Jesus asked. And I wondered today, in light of these amazing truths, it's an amazing story that Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority to forgive. That Jesus, the true King, sees our deepest needs and longs to meet it. I wonder today if for some of us is the first time we respond in faith. You say, I'm not trusting in the promotion. I'm not trusting in the healing. I'm not trusting in the restoration of a relationship with so-and-so. I'm not trusting in a new boss. I'm not trusting in a new car. I'm not trusting in a new life. I'm not trusting in the upgraded house. I'm not trusting in a new church with a better pastor who tells funnier stories. I'm trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone that he wants to forgive me at the depths of who I am, wants to forgive my rebellion, wants to forgive that I've placed a ton of other things at the center of my heart where God belongs, and he wants to restore me, restore you into a relationship with God, faith. And so the invitation today is very simple. Would you trust Jesus? So for some of us who've never done that before, then this would be a call. Would you respond to Jesus today by trusting that he died for you in your place, rose from the dead in order to restore you to a right relationship with God?
And then for some of us today who've been around the church scene for a while, the question would be the same. Would you be a person of faith today? Trusting and believing that Jesus is able and willing and trusting and believing that Jesus wants to do a great work in your friends' lives. And could you be the kind of faithful friend that because of your faith in Jesus drags your friends to the doorway, rips open a roof, and goes to great lengths to make sure that your friends not only experience healing, but more importantly, their deepest need of restoration that God has met.